Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Monday, October the 24th, 2022. It is currently 3.17 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Theology Central Studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. I apologize for that. I I know where I'm coming to you live from. I just was having a problem saying the Theology Central Studio, again, located right here in Abilene, Texas. I hope you're having a wonderful Monday. I hope the live broadcast that we have done today has been somewhat useful, beneficial, a blessing, thought-provoking, maybe even irritating. I hope we've done something today to have benefited you. And well, I hope that what we're about to do in this next, I don't know, 45 minutes to an hour will prove to be useful as well. Now, let me try to get you caught up with everything going on here at the Theology Central podcast, because so much of it connects together. We are currently involved in a very, 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 very important series. I don't know if I failed to mention it's important. A very important series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. And we had some very important discussions yesterday at Victory Baptist Church. You can listen to all of those messages. They're in the current, they're in the series, uh, Law, Understanding Law and Gospel. You can find that series Sermons 2.0 app. Just simply search for Theology Central. Look for recent series. You'll see Understanding Law and Gospel. Or to make it even easier for you, download the Church One app, Church O-N-E, Church O-N-E. Do a search for Theology Central. Basically, that will turn that app into our app. And then guess what? Look for series. Look for Understanding Law and Gospel. You may want to listen to, I think there's been 14 parts now, 15 parts. You want to listen to all of them, but the discussion from Sunday, I think, really, 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 really will create a little bit of controversy and probably be somewhat shocking if you're not, well, sadly to say, um, it will be somewhat shocking if you are just pretty much in the mindset of modern evangelical conservative Christianity because they will have such a, I mean, there's there's a, a way of thinking that's just so normal that nobody, when they hear something different, they don't know what to do or how to react. But it's a very important conversation dealing with sin and the life of the believer. And I think, I think everyone, I think we need to have that conversation. Even if you disagree, you need to listen to that. So that series is going on for the Bible study exercise uh, this week, we're in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and then for the today's Focus podcast series, well, oh, guess what? We're in we're in 2 Timothy chapter 3. So we're going to be spending a lot of time there, but there's something else we've been working on. We've been reviewing some podcast episodes from the Theocast podcast, and I would challenge you to look up the Theocast podcast, subscribe to it. They've been doing some discussion about 1 John, and someone shared it with me because if you've ever, if you've listened to our series on First John, you know that I've challenged what has become again the modern day common interpretation of First John. The modern common interpretation of First John today, and probably most churches that you would attend or visit or even listen to online, is going to go something like this: First John is the test book. 
in the New Testament. If you claim to be a Christian, then you look at 1 John and you test yourself. And how do you test yourself? You look to your actions. You look to the things you do and don't do. You look to your obedience because 1 John gives you all these tests. If you do this, you're saved. If you do this, you're saved. If you do this, you're saved. So you look to that test to determine if you're saved. Now, it's very interesting the way the test is given and the way the test is understood in the minds of most Christians. It goes something like this. Okay, here's commands from God saying you must do this. However, to pass the test, it doesn't have to be perfect, exact, entire, perpetual obedience, which is typically what we understand the law of God demands. Now, for some weird reason, those commands in 1 John They don't really demand perfect, exact, entire, and perpetual obedience because this is what we say. It's the test book, but however, you're not going to do it perfectly. So this is the way we create the test. First John is the test and your imperfect obedience to the law of God is sufficient for perfect assurance. Imperfect obedience supposedly helps you pass the test so that you can have perfect assurance. So imperfect obedience to God's commands and God's law somehow is supposed to give you perfect assurance. It makes absolutely no sense because God's law always demands perfect, exact, entire, and perpetual obedience. So how can you look to a book that says, do this, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this, and say, hey, here's the test. If I pass it, then I can have full assurance. But, 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 you don't need perfect obedience. It doesn't have to be exact. It doesn't have to be entire. It doesn't have to be perpetual. As long as you're trying, as long as it shows up somehow, then you can have perfect obedience. It is a broken, it's bro- It's a broken interpretation just from how illogical it is, right? It begins to fall apart. But our my perspective is that First John has to be understood as a polemic against Gnosticism and Docetism. If you understand it that, then it radically changes the way you interpret 1 John. Now, I'm not the first to say this. It's been, this has been taught in church history, but almost everybody, nope, it's a test. 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 However, again, your imperfect obedience to God's commands which typically demand perfect obedience. But in this case, your imperfect obedience is sufficient for perfect assurance. It is a a convoluted mess the way the church typically handles 1 John. So we've been reviewing those podcast episodes on Theocast, and obviously you can go find all of our messages on 1 John. What I'm probably going to do this evening is I'm probably going to ask our graphics team my artwork department, which is really just one person, I'm going to ask that person to create some artwork for a series on 1 John that I think I'm going to call Misinterpreting 1 John. And then I'm going to place all of our 1 John messages into that series, and it will be available, Church One app or Sermons 2.0. I'm going to try to get that all together because I'm going to just put all the messages there. We did a like a 20-part, almost 20-part series on 1 John as a part of our Bible study exercise podcast, but I think I'm going to move all of them over to one individual series on 1 John so that everyone can find it, because I'm so bothered by how much misunderstanding 
And I believe incorrect teaching there is about 1 John that just creates a lot of problems. And I think in some ways it destroys the proper distinction between law and gospel. That's why I mentioned that series as well. So on Theocast, they've been doing their podcast talking about 1 John, and I'm assuming they're going to do another episode soon still talking about 1 John. But in the meantime, uh, underneath their podcast episodes, it says resources. And I guess the gentleman's name is Justin at his church. He's been teaching on 1 John. So I just randomly grabbed one of the sermons from 1 John. I'm like, well, let's Let's analyze it, critique it, review it, because again, they are approaching 1 John much more in my direction, that it's a polemic against Gnosticism and Docetism, that it's not the test book that everyone claims that it is. And if it is a test, it's a test to determine, are you following Gnosticism and Docetism? Are you following the crucified and risen Christ? It's really like challenging. No, 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 no. That's Gnosticism. That's Docetism. You can't, you can't think that way because that would mean you're not a Christian because it's a false religion. You're rejecting the biblical Christ. So if it is a test, it's a test between biblical Christianity versus pseudo false fraudulent forms of Christianity at that time, Gnostics and Docetism and anything else that was out there still trying to connect itself to Christ, but was completely fraudulent. So, but we have obliterated the historical context and like, nope, okay, you claim to be a Christian? Good. Now go study First John and tell me if, you, if, you're, if you're truly a Christian or if you're fake. That is a complete denial, I think, of a correct way of understanding First John. So we're reviewing this. Um, I, I didn't I didn't grab these sermons in order. I didn't start with, I'm going to start with his first one because I don't want to review all of them, but I would again tell you to subscribe to the Theocast podcast. In the show notes, look for the link to Justin's sermons on 1 John. Listen to all of them. Listen to our series on 1 John. And even if when you're done, you disagree with all that we have said, at least you would have had the opportunity to hear a radically different approach compared to modern evangelical Christian churches today. I don't think it's that radical, but in the minds of most Christians today, you start saying this and immediately they're like, you're antinomian, you're this, you're this. And they start accusing you and just like, no, I think you've, you've been given one way of looking at it and you have a hard time of ever seeing it in a different way. So that's what we're going to do. So are you ready? We will not be able to finish this review in one episode. Why? The sermon is 58 minutes long, okay? Basically an hour long. Well, when you're reviewing, you, you, you can easily, just think uh, when you're stopping and, and, and analyzing, critiquing, and offering thoughts with everything they're saying, then a one-hour sermon takes almost three hours to review, and that's not even an exaggeration. So, And one of the reasons I want it to be like basically three hours long is so that then we're taking the sermon, but it's transformative enough that it meets fair use law in case someone was to try to make some argue, argument about copyright. Fair use allows me to use copyright material as long as it's transformative, turns into something other than what was originally produced, and doing so for a nonprofit where we don't charge money for any of our content or place it behind a paywall, and we're doing it for critique and for review and for analysis for educational purposes. So it meets all of that criteria. If that was a problem, I don't, I don't think it would ever... Would be it. We've only had one one time it's ever been an issue, and we were actually trying to help someone. That was a brand new Christian podcast, and we wanted to point everyone to go subscribe to that podcast. So we were reviewing, critiquing, analyzing 
um, one of their episodes. I think we ended up using two of their episodes because this, they were doing such a good job and it was fascinating. But they got furious and next thing you know, our content, we had to pull our content. All they had to do was contact me and I would have just pulled it down. But they, it, it's just, it just felt like they, did, they completely misrepresented what we were trying to do. It was like, hey, I want you to know about these other Christian podcasts. Go subscribe to this one. And they were like, no, you're taking our material for, I don't know what they thought we were trying to do with it other than trying to point people to it. I guess they were mad because they thought if you listen to everything we did, then you wouldn't go listen to those episodes. And there may be true. It may be true that you would not have listened to their episode one or episode two. But the goal was to make you go subscribe so that you would listen to three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, fifteen, fifteen, sixty, a hundred, that they would gain lifetime listeners. But <laughs> yeah, it went really, really bad. I was so frustrated after that mess. But everything else, everyone has always been cool. And we try and we try our very best to to point people to other podcasts. So subscribe to Theocast. And well, I don't even know when this sermon series was originally preached. But we're going to work through it, analyze it, and what we will see, okay? So are you ready? Thinking caps on. You may want to grab a notebook. You may want to grab a Bible. And you may want to set aside your presuppositions and how you typically handle First John. We always, whenever we get ready to open the Bible, we have to set aside all presuppositions and everything that we have ever been taught. I know when I say that, people think I'm crazy. But I stand by that as like, you say, what's the most critical step in hermeneutics? When you open the Bible, forget everything you've ever been taught so that you can study the text afresh, anew, because you're fallible. And the only way to constantly challenge all of the mistakes you con- you currently make, just like I do, is to keep studying the text anew every single time. Never rely on past notes. Never rely on past sermons. Never rely on past anything. Past study is of no value for present study. Right, so are you ready? First John, I believe it's chapter. Where's my Bible? I believe he's in chapter two. I think he's going to go first uh, John chapter two, and I think he's going to start in verse three. I think he's going to start in verse three. So here we go. I got my notebooks, I got Bibles, I got pencils, I just don't have water. All right. So I need someone to come to my house, go to my refrigerator, get me a water and walk up the stairs and hand it to me. I know I'm joking. All right. Here we go. We begin right now. So as many in the room know, sometimes things happen on social media. Amen, somebody. Social media it is an interesting thing. There's some bad about it. There's some good about it, too. So I, uh, I by no means have a massive social media following or anything like that, so don't misunderstand me. But I, I post mostly stuff about you know, theological truth, biblical things, um, some football stuff on occasion. But I'm surprised sometimes by the reaction that some of the things that I put up receive. The reaction is, is often one of, hey, bro, like some of these things you're saying about the Bible or about the gospel or about justification or whatever, they seem like this tenet of something new. Like this is a new idea or something. There are various movements within the church and sometimes because of my age and theological convictions, I'm sort of lumped in with other kind of movements that go on. You must be a proponent of this or this. And I just want to kind of right now... um, in part by way of introduction, but in part because this is on my mind and it's. I'm going to jump in here already. Um, yeah, 
First of all, you say anything about the Bible, theology, doctrine, some, someone's going to disagree with you, right? So first of all, they're going to disagree with you. That's just, it doesn't matter what you say. It really doesn't matter what you say. Um, and what you have to hope for is that you, that your team will support you while the other teams are against you. So typically within Christianity, you got to find your team, right? Now, whoever your team is, you got to stay in line with their team, man. You got to wear their colors. You got to cheer for them. You got to say the same things, talk the same way because you want a team, right? But because the other teams are going to say you're wrong, you're a heretic, you're an idiot, you're a fool, and they're going to condemn you. So you got to find your team and then be prepared that the other teams are going to condemn you but hopefully your team will come out and support. It's ridiculous, it's childish, but that's the way it works. It's very, very fleshly, but that's the way it works. Now, for me, here's my view of it. I don't care about your stinking teams, right? I'm not trying to be rude, but I just don't care about the stinking teams or the stinking labels, but that's what happens. You gotta have a team. So as soon as you say something, they immediately like, oh, you have to be there, you have to be on that team, or you have to be in that team, or you have to be in that team. You have to be either your lordship, free grace. And I understand the categories are important sometimes to try to give some kind of framework and definition, but I don't care about the team. I don't care about the labels. What now, I, now, it doesn't mean I don't study the labels, know the labels, and, and understand that sometimes you have to place something within those categories. I, I do understand that there's a need for it, but when I say I don't care about them, is that my goal is not to figure out if what the Bible says fits a team. My thing is to figure out what the scriptures say, what works, what doesn't work, to create you know, theological hypotheses, test them, take them to their logical conclusion and go, well, that works, that doesn't work, doesn't doesn't make sense, that does, that doesn't, that does, that doesn't. I don't care if that's going to put me against my team, your team, their team, that team. I don't care about any of the teams. And I always find myself in trouble because it's like, oh, now I got these people mad at me. Now I got these people mad at me. Now I got them. And now I got this. And it's like, man alive. How about where is team? We just care about figuring out what the text says. Like, I don't really care if it makes the reform mad, the non-reform mad, the dispensationalist mad, the amillennialist mad, the preterist mad. I don't care which team gets mad because all I care about is trying to figure out what the text says. But it's true. You say anything, immediately you're going to be labeled, you're going to be put in a category, and then you're going to be deemed to be not on the right team, and therefore you're going to be condemned. But you better hope that your comments meet the other team or you're going to find yourself with no team being yelled at and booed and basically shot at, verbally speaking, by all the teams. And it's just Christianity. It's, it's such a tribalism. And, 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 and I understand that we have to put things in theological categories, right? I mean, certain things are Pelagian, some things are Augustinian, uh, some things are Trinitarian, some things are modalist or sub. I know the theological terms and I understand why they're there. I just wish that Christians were more worried about truth than they were teams. And, and say, instead of going, instead of arguing, oh, 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 you're this, how about instead of saying that I'm this, you deal with the actual text and figure out what the text says. But it's almost like if I can if I can put my opponent in a category, then I can just say, well, they're that category, that category is wrong, they're wrong. How about let's look at the text? So I understand what he's going through there, and that you immediately get labeled, and well, that happens. So, all right, let's continue. Relevant to everything we do at CBC, and it's certainly relevant to our time today in 1 John. 
three things, to proclaim these three things. One, justification by faith in Christ alone, meaning that you are declared righteous by God completely based on the merit of Jesus Christ received by faith apart from anything, anything that you ever do. That's one. That's that. That's like a foundational truth. You are all believers are justified completely by faith alone and imputed righteousness. You are declared to be righteous. You're declared to be perfect. You're declared to be holy in the sight of God because of an imputed righteousness. It has nothing to do with what you've done, what you're doing or what you will do in the future. If you say in any way, shape, or form, no, 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 you, you may be justified by an imputed righteousness, but you better produce a practical righteousness, and I'm going to judge your imputed righteousness by a practical righteousness, and if you don't have enough practical righteousness, then I'm going to say you never got an imputed righteousness. If you don't understand the logical fallacy in that, I don't have to, I don't know what to do. I don't know, I don't know how to help you understand it. Imputed cannot be judged by a practical righteousness because it's imputed. It means it's just accredited to your account. It doesn't make you holy in practice. It declares you to be holy positionally. So you can't look at that and then look at a practical righteousness and say, well, you don't have enough of it. You didn't do this. You didn't do that. Well, you're not saved. Well, then that means I'm not saved by an imputed righteousness. I'm saved by the presence of some kind of a practical righteousness, which then would mean I am actually saved by an infused righteousness, not an imputed righteousness. And therefore, you've taken us right back to Rome and just you know, go ahead. Maybe that's why Protestant churches don't really celebrate the Reformation on October 31st. They do trunk or treat, fall festivals, fun, food, and games, because who cares about understanding the difference between imputed and infused righteousness, since most Protestants have already returned back to an infused righteousness idea anyway, while claiming they don't believe that. So, yeah, all right, yeah. Yeah, you can tell I get fired up about all of that. All right, let's continue. So that's number one. I completely agree with him. We've got, that's a good starting point. We are justified by faith, imputed righteousness, not infused, and we are justified by faith and declared righteous, not based on anything we will do, could do, should do, can't do, has nothing to do with anything we do. It's all determined by Christ who did it, accomplished it, and it's done. Two, to proclaim that sanctification The process of being made more like Christ flows out of justification. So what I mean by that is that you being transformed, you being made more holy, only flows out of your justified state. It only comes out of the fact and the reality that you have been declared righteous, counted righteous and pardoned in Jesus. And from that, comes your sanctification. Now, that's interesting. I would know exactly, I I would like to see, I would, hopefully he will flesh that out a little bit more, or maybe we'll have to go back to some earlier sermons. The sanctification part is where everyone loses their minds, and then we merge law and gospel, and things go absolutely wacky, and things go absolutely crazy, and we talked a little bit about sanctification in our discussion on law and gospel. Please go listen to the last few episodes, and you'll hear some very, 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 what will be considered controversial discussions about it. But uh, just understand sanctification. We need to understand uh, sanctification, a positional sanctification, 
That's done by God. Salvation, he sets us apart unto himself. That's done. That's finished. It's complete. It happens once. Instantaneously, it's done. All right. Then we have the ultimate sanctification or the permanent sanctification. That's glorification. That's accomplished by God. When we have a new body, no more pain, no more sin, no more death. It's all done. So, so the the uh, positional sanctification and the uh, permanent sanctification, both accomplished by God. We would say monergistically, it's done. The, the debate happens about the what we saw sometimes referred to as the progressive or the experiential sanctification. What happens between our justification and our glorification called life? Now, how does that work? Who does that? He is making a claim that that justification flows, that sanctification flows from our justification. Now, what does he mean by that? How do we understand that? What most people do is try to judge our justification on the basis of our sanctification instead of judging our justification based off the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that creates a major, 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 major problem because it almost demands that justification becomes an infused righteousness instead of an imputed righteousness. These are very important theological concepts that has profound impact on how you understand the Christian life, right? So, but he believes sanctification must flow from our justification. I don't know exactly what he means by that, but it is an interesting concept, one that we may need to explore in another podcast episode. So in other words, to emphasize your righteousness in Christ does not lead to immorality. It leads to sanctification. Third, to proclaim that sanctification is as certain as your present justification and your future glorification. To proclaim all of those things is not new. To proclaim those things is historically Protestant. And anybody who thinks it's new does not understand. Protestantism does not understand biblical gospel truth. And I'm not trying to be arrogant or condescending. But what we're doing here, you guys remember the old Pop-Tarts commercial? So hot, they're cool. So cool, they're hot. You remember that? Anybody with me? Anybody a child of like the late 80s, early 90s? Come on now. So hot, they're cool. So cool, they're hot. What we're preaching here at CBC is so old that people think it's new. It's so old, like I'm talking predating America old, right? Like 1500s and earlier old, that it just seems novel. Anyway, that's just a little kind of like. And there's a lot of truth to that because I talked about the history of this Sunday morning that American evangelicalism has been completely infiltrated and brainwashed by pietism which led to a form of legalism. Pietism is focused on what you do, 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 what you do. And and it's all about, you know, you don't dance, you don't go to the movies, all this kind of pietism. And it leads to a legalism in this way, defining legalism as this. If your pietism doesn't reach a certain level, well, then obviously you're not saved, which ultimately means, even though I know Christians would say, no, that's not what we're saying. They would say, no, if you're truly saved, you will do this. But by saying that if you're saved, you have to do this. And if you don't, you're not saved. You're still saying that I'm saved somehow by those works. You're like, no, I'm saying that if you're truly saved, you will produce works. But if I don't have the works, you're saying I'm not saved. Therefore, I must have the works to be saved. You're still making works a part of it, no matter how you play the little semantics and try to play the game. So pietism led to a legalism that said, oh, 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 you do this, you do this, you don't do this, you do this, you don't do this. Well, no way you can be saved. Well, the minute you do that, you're telling someone's salvation is not based on an imputed righteousness, 
but on the presence of a practical righteousness, which begins to destroy the entire Reformation. Okay, it'd it be, ah, it, it's just maddening. It's maddening. Okay, but let's see where he's going to go. Let's see where he's going to go with this. Pastoral diatribe really quickly from me, but it matters, friends. This is like the anchor and the ground of what we're doing, and it's the anchor and the ground of your standing before God. These truths matter. So we herald these things here at CBC. It's relevant every Sunday. It's relevant as we look back to John's letter, uh, the letter of First John, I should say, his first letter recorded for us in the New Testament outside of his gospel. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them uh, to the letter of First John. We're going to be spending our time today, First John chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. But I will read chapter 1 and verse 5 on through chapter 2 and verse 11 for us here in just a moment. After I read the text, I'm going to make a couple of more comments that are sort of kind of chalking the field, introductory in nature. And then I want us to consider the passage verse by verse, essentially. We're going to walk through it. And then there are three other points for just deeper consideration that I want to make after that. So that's our plan for our time together this morning. But now before we go any further, let me read God's word for us, starting in 1 John 1, 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. So like I said, I've got a few more very brief chalking the field introductory comments to make. This is our weekly reminder of the context of 1 John, right? This is never bad. Remember that there's false teaching going on in this church. There is a lot of kind of 
blending of Greek philosophy with Christian doctrine, leading to what we've called in sort of a technical way, proto-Gnostic thought that was just kind of Platonic, Platonist or Platonic, I should say, kind of dualistic view of the world, a spiritual plane, a material plane. What happened in the physical plane was insignificant, really. What happened at the spiritual level was significant. And so, therefore, the sins of the body were not a real concern. This was leading to legitimate lawlessness within the church. But not only is this false teaching producing lawlessness in the church, there also is the issue of apostasy the issue of people leaving the faith and leaving the church. We can discern all of this from the context of 1 John, and we also know just within the context of first century history on into the second century and beyond, we know of Gnostic thought and its prevalency. Now, John's... I like the fact that he's laying the history down. Again, I think it... He called it proto-Gnosticism. I think Gnosticism was, was there. It was present. And the issue is this a fight against Gnostic thinking, Gnostic concepts, that most of these concepts deal with the way Gnostics thought and taught. And it's basically like, no, if if you go that way, you're into Gnosticism. And to go into Gnosticism, you're denying Christ. You're denying Christ came in the flesh. You're denying the incarnation. You're denying his true sacrifice. And therefore, obviously, that cannot, that's not Christian. So, that, so all of these things, when you're like, no, if you do this or you do this, you're doing that. No, in other words, if you're thinking along the lines of Gnosticism, that's outside of biblical Christianity. Seeing it that way radically changes the, the way you approach the book. But all right, let's continue. Tone is something else that we've considered in the three sermons so far in this letter. What's his tone? What's his kind of mode of communication? Is he in angry prophet mode? We've thought about the fact that he's not. He's in more of a protective big brother kind of mode as he's writing this letter to believers. He's writing to believers within a church that is under siege from false teaching and apostasy. So he's pastoral and he's tender. And then I want us really quickly to not forget last week's text, right? chapter 1 and verse 8 through chapter 2 and verse 2, the work of Jesus Christ in the place of the believer shows up very early in the letter of 1 John. And so we'll be considering today's text and certainly the entire letter in light of all of those things. We come with those things in our backpack as we look to the passage today. Now, public service announcement. I've been quite clear that I think John's main aim in this letter is not to smoke out nominal believers in the church, but his aim is to comfort and reassure the redeemed. Now, I will speak today and throughout this series to nominal Christianity, to that reality, right? To the reality that there are many people who profess Christ who are not Christians. I'll acknowledge it. I'll speak to it. I'll try to be clear when I do. But I aim in terms of an overarching tone and tenor of this sermon and even this series to have John's very pastoral tone. So that's just kind of truth and advertising for you. So now let's look to the text. We're going to make our way through these verses uh, just one by one and consider them together. Put your eyes on verse three of chapter two. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The him in that verse most clearly is Jesus. I just stop right here. Now, this is typically how this is handled. Hey, we, how do you know you're a Christian? You keep his commandments. 
All right? Now, immediately, everybody will go, okay, okay. So I got to keep his commandments. But then you just give it a second. Just give it a couple of beats. Okay? How do I know that I'm a Christian? You will keep his commandments. Boom. Boom. Just give it a couple of beats. Boom. Boom. However, you're never going to keep them perfectly. However, you're going to sin. So this is not calling for perfect obedience. It's not calling for exact, entire, and perpetual obedience. It's just calling that you obey, that that the kind of the overall character of your life is obedience. Okay, well, then how do you measure this, right? How do you measure this? Because I can just give you some scripture. Love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. You're in perpetual violation of that command all the time. Love your neighbor as yourself. You're in constant perpetual uh, violation of that. And be ye holy as God is holy. You are in perpetual disobedience. If I said perpetual obedience, you're in perpetual disobedience to loving God, loving your neighbor, and being holy as God is holy. You're in perpetual disobedience to those things. So you say, well, 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 your life will characterize obedience. Now, what you're going to do is you're going to reduce that to, well, you don't go to movies or you don't do this. You don't drink. You don't cuss. You don't do, you don't wear this. You're going to start looking for these external things to give you like, see, See, my life shows obedience, but you don't truly love God the way you're supposed to. You're in perpetual disobedience. You don't truly love others the way you're supposed to. You're in perpetual disobedience, and you're clearly in perpetual disobedience because you don't, you're not as holy as God is holy, which he commands you to do. And, and the Sermon on the Mount, be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is, in, uh, is perfect. There in Peter, be holy as God is holy. It's, it's even in Leviticus, be ye holy as God is holy. Where none of us is, will ever accomplish that. So if you're saying, hey, how do I know God? Is I keep his commandments. Well, you, you can try to play all the games. Say, well, no, no, it's not perfect obedience. It's, it's less than perfect obedience that can give you perfect assurance. Not only does that fall apart, I can just, I can just, I have just demonstrated to you, you are in perpetual disobedience. So how do we understand? How is he going to handle this? Well, let's see how he handles it. We know that we have come to know Christ if we keep his commandments. So we, we know that we're legitimate. We know that we really have come to know the Lord Jesus if we obey his commandments. It's very straightforward. This sounds very much like the Great Commission. See, here we go. See, now, now, I will think the argument here is the Gnostics would argue, no, 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 no. You don't have to obey with your body. You don't have to obey that way. You don't have to obey that way. You can just do whatever you want because what you do in the flesh doesn't matter. But so if you take, if, if you claim to be a Christian and your mindset is, I can just do whatever I want because whatever I do in the body doesn't matter. Well, clearly you don't know Christ. Clearly you're not in right relationship with Christ because you are adopting a, a, a doctrine that is of Gnosticism, which rejects that Christ came in the flesh, rejects the, the significance of what, in other words, you've bought into a completely false system. Now others will argue. No, what he means here that if we uh, if we don't follow his commandments, we don't know him. The know there is not in reference to salvation. It's in re- reference to our fellowship, our relationship with him, that we may be saved, but we don't know him in an intimate fellowship way. There's all kinds of different ways of trying to approach this. Others will say, no, 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 no. You don't obey. You're not saved. Okay, well, now my salvation is determined by my obedience. And if you're telling me if I don't obey that I'm saved, how can you say that I'm saved by an imputed righteousness? Because my obedience is going to determine whether I'm saved or not saved. So you either have to go with, this is clearly has something to do with Gnosticism, 
or this is about fellowship, or you could argue, well, it is true that uh, how do I know him? I keep his commandments. And how do I keep his commandments? In Christ Jesus, who kept all the commandments for me. Somehow you have to bring that into it. But all I've, I've listened, look, I've been through all the different ways of trying to approach this text. And they, they, the one that basically says, hey, this is a test. And how do you know you're saved? You will obey. Okay, that sounds so good. Everyone in the church will say amen. But I'm like, well, wait a minute. I thought I was saved by an imputed righteousness. Well, an imputed righteousness, if you're truly saved by an imputed righteousness, you're going to obey. So my, my incomplete obedience is sufficient to give me perfect assurance, even though I can tell you and show you that as believers, we're all in perpetual disobedience. So how can obedience be the test if we're all in perpetual disobedience? <laughs> it's, it falls completely and utterly apart. I was hoping he was going to do something with this, but he, he's not. Let, let's see. Let's see. I'm hoping maybe, maybe he's going to, maybe he's going to turn this around. But right now he just seems like it's straightforward. Obey. He's got to explain what that means. Let's see what he says. Right. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. It's a very straightforward verse. It requires not much from me in terms of unpacking or exposition. Put your eyes on verse four. Contrasting verse here. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. So you know that you've come to know Christ if you keep his commandments. If you say you know Jesus, but you don't keep his commandments, you lie. And the truth is not in you. And see, what what blows my mind is Christians say these things and never stop to go, well, wait a minute, let me just think of some of the commands Christ has given. Love God, love your neighbor, be holy as God is holy. Do you obey those? No, I fall short continually. Well, dun, dun, da, da, you're not saved. Oh, no, no, that's not what we're saying. That's not what we're saying. As long as you try, then we have to start trying. We so minimize it. Like we say it's a test and then we so minimize the test that then we can all end up claim to be saved. Well, I'm going to take it back. We so minimize the test that I can be saved, but I'm not so sure about you. <laughs> Again, very straightforward. Put your eyes on verse five. But whoever keeps his word, right, whoever keeps his commands, in him, truly the love of God is perfected. Now just for a moment on that phrase, in him, the love of God is perfected. Because that love of God, the way that that's phrased, you could understand that one of two ways. I don't necessarily think either is wrong, okay? Like I think both have some legitimate application. You could understand that meaning our love for God or God's love for us, right? I'm going to go with the latter, and let me explain what I mean. I understand John to be saying that whoever keeps Christ's word, whoever keeps Christ's commands in him truly, God's love for us is perfected. It's not that God's love needs to be perfected in that his love is imperfect. What I mean is this. The word there that is translated perfected carries with it a connotation of a goal being accomplished, right? A perfect end being reached. That's the idea. So if we keep his commands, the perfect goal, the perfect aim of God's love is being realized in us. 
That's how I understand that verse. With this in view, John is saying that whoever keeps the word of Christ, the love of God is accomplishing its goal, and it is God's love for us and in us that is the primary issue here. This is in step with the biblical teaching wholesale and even what John writes elsewhere in this letter. He will write what? We love because he first loved us. The love of God for us and in us is always the initiator of our growth. It is always the initiator of our obedience. And so that's just my take. You can judge my exposition. If you understood it as our love for God is being perfected, that's not wrong. In that as we are growing and being sanctified, our love for God and our affection for God grows. That's true. Both are true. I think the emphasis here, though, is on God's love in us accomplishing its perfect aim. Put your eyes on the second part of verse 5. By this we may know that we are in him. Again, in him being in Christ. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So we know that we're in Christ if the things that characterized him during his life on earth characterize us. This is off. This is, see, they, they said it's a polemic against Gnosticism or Docetism, right? They, they almost went with that idea. And then in the actually preaching of the sermon, they've completely abandoned that. Because they're basically saying, hey, guess what? How do you know you're saved? What characterizes Jesus characterizes you. Oh, really? So let me see. What characterizes Jesus? Perfection, holiness, obedience. You're going to tell me that characterizes you when I've given you three scriptures that I can show you're in perpetual disobedience to. Loving God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Loving your neighbor as yourself and being holy as God is holy. You're in perpetual disobedience to that. So how can you say that therefore your life is going to characterize Jesus when you fall short of what Jesus is 24-7? The only way... To, if your life is going to be have the same character as Jesus did, then it's going to be sinless. That, oh man, this is so frustrating. This is so frustrating because this is not, this is not even, this is, this is useless. This is useless. I, 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 I'm now just going to get, this is of no value or no help. They, on, on the Theocast, they said, hey, listen to these sermons because I thought, okay, it's good. Their, their, their whole argument is that First John is a polemic against Gnosticism or proto-Gnosticism and Docetism. But when they start preaching, they've just, they've not even mentioned Gnosticism. Gnosticism would deny that you need obedience to Christ because what you do in the flesh is not, does not matter. When it talks about love, it would, uh, Gnosticism, I can just read from an article here on Gnosticism. Gnosticism was distinguished by an unethical, loveless intellectualism that seems to be the explanation of the false teaching against which 1 John is directed. The apostle describes the dry head knowledge which left the heart and life untouched by love and which led men, while they professed to love God, nevertheless to remain destitute of love to their fellow men. So the, the, the whole point is, is that this goes directly, directly, directly after Gnosticism. That's what this is. First John is the thing about Gnosticism. I, I, I'm just baffled here that this is of, of, of no value. Okay, um, hang on. I'm going to look here. 
I'm going to look at something else. I'm going to look at a couple of things here. Um, okay, that's of no help. Okay, I'm going to do something here. Because I think all the commentaries are going to do the exact same thing. All right here, I'm going to go to 1 John chapter 2. I'm just t- typing in Google. 1 John chapter 2. Let's go to verse 3. All right. Um, let's go here. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. All right, I'm just going to look at different commentaries, different things that pop up, and just see what we get here. Uh Okay, here we go. Okay, so th- so this is going to go the same direction everyone goes. This, this is, oh, this is so frustrating. This is so frustrating. All right. Sinners are saved from the penalty of sin by God's grace once and for all through trusting in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for salvation. Now, please, they don't say anything about the imputed righteousness there, but of course not because we, we almost forget that we're saved by an imputed righteousness. No, but it says, but believers must mature in the faith and continue the process of ongoing salvation as moment by moment the life of Christ within saves us from the power of sin in our lives so once again we're supposedly saved from the power of sin now if I'm completely saved from the power of sin then I should be able to be sinless so here's how it is you're saved by grace but 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 you have to obey you don't obey you're not saved but you're saved by grace But how much obedience? Well, it won't be perfect obedience. So imperfect obedience supposedly gives me perfect assurance. The whole thing doesn't make any sense. Let me look at some other commentaries. Uh, I mean, anyone who just looks at this and honest is going to go, wait a minute. We've got some problems here. We got some problems here. All right. Uh, Let's see here. This is, okay, verse 3 makes a new transition into a new line of thought. This verse begins the first of three tests for fellowship with God. These tests for fellowship is a response to the false claims in chapter 1. John gives assurance of his fellowship. The section launches three claims. Uh, This section launches three claims to intimate fellowship with God articulated by the word knowledge. This is how the believer can know that he knows the God of light. Walking in the light not only reveals our omission, but also our obligations, not only our disobedience, but also our duties. If we walk in the light, there will be a threefold response, fellowship, appropriation, and constant fellowship with God. Right? These three tests show us how we validate whether we are in fellowship with the Lord or not. Please note, they're saying fellowship, fellowship. It's not. And then please note, there is a test whereby we know that we have fellowship with God if we safeguard the principles of the Word of God. The Gnostic false teachers claim to know God in a transcendent way. The word Gnostic means knowing ones. They thought they needed, they thought they needed was a sublime insight. They aspired to embrace the deity to which they formed a part. Their knowledge of God was mystical. The Gnostics' knowledge was so, uh, basically, you know, so 
mystical and out there, they did not have time to practice the principles of the word. So they're saying that the Gnostics were like, hey, we know God, but it has nothing to do with our life. And what John is trying to say, according to this perspective, is that our fellowship, our fe- not our salvation, but our fellowship is tested by what we do because what we do matters in the Christian world versus the Gnostic world that says what you do in the flesh is irrelevant, right? So that at least that one brought in Gnosticism, but they connect it to fellowship, not to salvation, which that's the only way you can really go here. Um, okay. Okay, here we go. Uh, here's, here's another article. Recently, I was on a radio talk show, and a caller asked me to explain how 1 John 2.3 could fit my view that salvation is a free gift, and that salvation is not, and that assurance is not based on looking to our works, but looking to the word which promises that whoever believes in Christ has eternal life. What follows is my reply. There are two basic views on which, on what the whole book, there are two basic views on what the whole book of 1 John is about. To understand 1 John 2, 3 through 11, we need to know the purpose of the book. One view is that John was writing to encourage his readers to examine their works to find out if they were true believers or true unbelievers. This is often called the test of life view of 1 John. Uh, Robert Law popularized this position with his commentary by that name. Many commentaries adopted this view. A second view is that John was writing to encourage his readers, all of whom were already believers, to produce good works so they, they, might be, they might be in intimate fellowship with Christ. This might be called the test of fellowship view. Uh, Dwight Pentecost, uh, John Mitchell, and others have commentaries advocating this view. I take it, I take it that the latter view is correct. John tells us his purpose in the prologue of the book, 1 John 1, 3. John says, That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you may also have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Notice that John did not say that he was writing to tell his readers how they might have assurance of their salvation. Those holding to the test of life view of 1 John suggest and said that 1 John 5, 13 is the purpose statement of the book. This verse says, these things I've written unto you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. There are several problems with this view. First, the words, these things have I written unto you refer not not to all that proceeds, but only to the immediate context. The same Greek expression occurs only one other occasion in the book, in John 2.26, 1 John 2.26, and there too, only the immediate context is in view. Second, 1 John 5.13 denies the premise of the test of life view that both believers and unbelievers are the designated recipients of the book. John made it clear in 5.13 and throughout 1 John that he was writing to believers. What then does 1 John 2.13 mean? It's talking about how believers have fellowship with God. Notice verse 3, and by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. The same thought is found in 1 John 1.5-7 and John chapter 15, 9-14 and throughout the Old and New Testament. When John speaks of knowing Christ, he is using a term which can refer to one's position or one's experience. In this context, the latter is in view. In other words, a believer knows Jesus Christ in his experience to the degree that he obeys him. The word know is as flexible in English as it was in Greek. 
Imagine hearing this statement about a man who has just divorced his wife of many years. They, they were married for 30 years, and yet he never knew her. He certainly knew his wife in one sense. She had been his wife for 30 years. However, he did not know her in the sense of intimate fellowship or fellowship or knowledge. So this is, the, this is with carnal Christians and their knowledge of God. So they go with that perspective. The only other option you have is to say, no, no, no. The way you know you're saved is your obedience. But you don't have to have perfect obedience. <laughs> your imperfect obedience can give you perfect assurance, even though, and then you'll say, but that obedience, it, it, they're, they're, they, it will characterize your life, even though I've given you three scriptures that will characterize nothing but perpetual disobedience in your entire Christian life. Love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself and be holy as God is holy. You're never going to fulfill that. So if you go with the test view, not only that, you destroy the idea that you're saved by an imputed righteousness. Because how can obedience be used to prove that you were saved by an imputed righteousness? You destroy the gospel. I really thought this sermon series was going to be worth reviewing, but it, it they're not even address. They don't address the Gnostic situation here. Gnostics would say, no, we know God. And it doesn't matter what we do. It's irrelevant. You don't have to do anything. And he's arguing against the, I think he's arguing against Gnosticism here more than anything. Don't go, if you're going with the people who claim they know God in this, in, you know, this kind of mystic way, and they don't believe anything you do matters, they, they're denying the incarnation. They're denying basic Christianity. You don't know God if you're going with the Gnostics and their idea of knowledge, that to me is what this is really about. But I, I got no problem with the testing fellowship view. I, I, I got no problem with that view. This is testing our fellowship with God. That makes more sense than the testing that I'm saved or not saved. Because if I'm testing whether I'm saved or not saved, let's make it very clear. I have to obey his commandments. And what does God demand about obe obedience to his commandments? It has to be personal, has to be perfect, has to be exact, has to be entire, and has to be perpetual. Anything less is disobedience, and anything less is sin. So if you're going, you can't come along and say, no, 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 no. Your obedience doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be somewhat. So you're saying complete failure to obey his commands because... Unless I obey all of them, if I violate one of the law, I'm guilty of all of it. You're going to somehow try to tell me that my disobedience is somehow can be sufficient as obedience and pass this test. It makes absolutely no sense. I, I, I wanted to continue to review this. Well, we'll just listen to a little bit longer. I think he's just going to move on. I, I don't think there's really, we're not even going to finish reviewing this sermon. I'm going to change this. I'm going to change this from part one to just to just first John chapter two, because th this I the whole idea is that this sermon was going to really dig into first John as a polemic against Gnosticism and docetism. And he's not even explaining how this test works. Like, I, I don't understand how Christians go to a church where the preacher just ignores the problems the text present. This text presents 500 problems. It's like, it's simple. It's straightforward. No, it's not. No, it's not. Because nobody here obeys his commandments. 
All right, so we've heard obey, keep his commandments, right? Walk as Christ walked. But what all does that entail? John is about to continue to unpack this for us. He's about to. Okay, maybe maybe I spoke too soon. Maybe I spoke too soon. Maybe he's going to circle back around and explain it. Let's see. Explain it further. Verse 7, put your eyes there. This is a continuous argument, right? Like in the old, in the original, there's no like headings like there is in your ESV Bible, right? So it just kind of keeps going. Beloved, he says, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So what John is doing here in verse 7 and following is explaining further, giving us more detail. He's fleshing it out more for us, what it means to keep Christ's commandments and to walk as Christ walked. Here we go. Now remember, so he's not, he's still not explaining because you're, you're, so we have to obey. If we're going to be saved, if we're going to be saved, we have to obey. Now he's saying that he's getting ready to explain what it is. Well, all he's getting ready to do is explain how we, how we obey. He's not going to, he's not going to explain how that we, how the fact is that we fall short of this commandment 24 seven somehow now proves that I'm saved. All right. Let's see what he's going to say. He says, I'm not writing anything new to you. I'm not writing a new commandment to you at all. I'm writing you something, in fact, that's quite old, an old commandment. Then he does say, what I'm writing to you is something that you have heard from the beginning, right? It's from the beginning of your time as a believer. You've heard this. This is not novel. This is not new. At the same time, while it's old, it is new. He's saying both things. It is a new commandment that I'm writing to you. This commandment is true in Christ and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. A couple of observations just briefly here. One, on the new commandment that's old. This, we should understand, is a direct reference to the words of Christ in John 13. There's a reason we read that together today. Jesus says there, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, we're going to consider this in more detail later. But when Jesus says a new commandment I'm giving to you, Christ in no way was contradicting what had come before. He did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He in no way taught anything that was contradictory to what had been revealed prior. So when he says it's a new commandment, he's not saying I'm changing, I'm flipping the script. What he's saying is I'm framing it perhaps in a different way. I'm summarizing the law in a unique way. And we'll think about that some later, actually in some detail. But then the second piece is this, where John says this commandment is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. I think we should understand this as just a simple pointing to the fact that a new era has dawned in the church, right? With the coming of Messiah and the establishment of the church, there is this thing called the new covenant reality that is coming to be. Jesus, by John, is called what? In John chapter 1 of this gospel. Jesus is called the true light. Messiah, the true light, has come into the world. The new covenant era has dawned. God is making all things new through Jesus, and the darkness is passing away. Christ saw to that. 
You'll often hear it said that Jesus dealt a mortal blow to Satan, to sin and death, when he came the first time. It's true. It's a legitimate biblical way to describe it. The darkness has ultimately been defeated and is being defeated. And it is certain that Christ will be victorious. God, by his spirit, is accomplishing the new covenant reality of love for one another in the church. That's what John is saying in verse 8. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. All right, well, we, we, we can get into, oh man, I have so many issues with it. Yeah, so Christ is accomplishing love for one another in the church. 2,000 years of church history, fighting, backbiting, gossip, slander, hatred. But somehow, somehow, it's supposedly being accomplished. Somehow, Christians can literally deceive themselves to think a reality is present when all the reality screams, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? The church is filled with hatred and lying and gossip and, and people will, will hurt and destroy one another and call, I mean, give me a break. Okay. All right. Let, let's see what he's going to say here. I, he clearly is not going to explain the problems with this text. He's not even going to, he's not even trying to deal with the complications here. Let's continue just trucking through these verses. Put our eyes on verse nine now. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Now, where John goes immediately after verse 8 does also just reiterate and make clear that John is pointing to John 13. When he says, I'm not writing anything new to you, right? It's an old commandment, but on the one hand, it is a new commandment. Love your brother. Love each other, right? He's pointing to the words of Christ from that last night that he was on earth. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness, verse 9. This is just like what we were thinking about before. If you hate your brother, you're demonstrating that you are not in Christ. There you go. See, they're just going with the same. This is not, this, they're not, they don't have a new approach to 1 John. It's the same old approach. The same, you must love others. If you don't, you're not saved. Therefore, what's required to be saved? Loving others. If you don't, you're not saved. But so then, wait a minute, I thought I was saved by an imputed righteousness. Christ loved others. Christ loved his enemy. In Christ, I do love people correctly. In practice, I fall short. No, 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 no. Even though you're saved by an imputed righteousness, you better love. And if you don't love, you prove you were never saved. So wait a minute. So I, so my lack of love proves that I was, that I never received an, that I was never given an imputed righteousness. That sounds like you're telling me that I received an infused righteousness. And now I've demonstrated that I have not cooperated with it. I've committed a mortal sin. I'm no longer in a state of grace. You're basically teaching Roman Catholicism. I, do, I, I don't understand how Christians don't see that they just work themselves into a corner that they can't get out of. You're saved by grace alone by an imputed righteousness. However, if you don't do A, B, C, D, E, you're not in Christ. So my practice determines imputed righteousness. Literally makes no sense. And now you just said that I have to do these things in order to be saved. But guess what they're going to say? You're not going to love perfectly. You're not going to obey perfectly. So my incomplete love and my incomplete obedience is somehow sufficient to give me perfect assurance. However, whenever the law is given, 
And this is clearly a reference to an old commandment, to, to an old law, to the law. Well, guess what? The law demands perfect, exact, personal, complete, and perpetual obedience. How can my violation of that, the law, the standard of the law, be any proof of my salvation? You can't say, well, it's, it's, it's incomplete and that's sufficient. No, God doesn't accept incomplete obedience. He demands perfect obedience. And the only way I can have perfect obedience is in Christ. This has to be a test that, first of all, it's an argument against Gnosticism, which says you don't have to love anyone. You don't have to obey anything. This is an argument against the Gnostic idea. Or you can say that this is a test about fellowship. You can't make it a test about salvation. All right, we'll stop there. I'm going to rename this just 1 John 2, because, I mean, there's no, I mean... You can look up Theocast, look up their uh, podcast on First John, look at the study notes, the, the uh, episode notes, the show notes, and you can follow the link and you can listen to all of these sermons on First John from the people from Theocast. And there you go. But I, I'm, I'm just frustrated now because their, their whole argument in their podcast is we're going there's a, there's a correct way to look at First John. This is the same old way. There's nothing new about this. They're not even. They're not even dealing with the, the issues. <laughs> okay, well, see, you see the danger of not reviewing these things first? The danger of not reviewing these things first is, well, you end up going, uh, well, we just spent an hour and nine minutes, and now I feel like, well, that it wasn't a waste. Because once again, it makes us have to deal with this and how to handle this. So how do you deal with First John? Either it's a test to prove one's salvation, it's, if it's a test to prove one's salvation, then this is where you end up. You now are pointing people to practical obedience to prove an imputed righteousness. That makes absolutely no sense. And what you're saying is you may be saved by grace. However, if you don't do A, B, C, D, E, you're not really saved. And not only that, you becomes more contradictory because now you're going to say your incomplete obedience somehow can give you perfect assurance that makes no sense. And not only that, you take the commands of God and now you say somehow that my incomplete obedience is sufficient when the commands of God always demand perfect, exact, entire, and perpetual obedience. So clearly none of that works in this. It's a test of salvation. If it's a test of fellowship, all right, I'm saved positionally, but if I want an intimate fellowship with God, then these are the things that are required to grow in that closeness to God. All right. I like that. I believe it all has to be understood as an argument against Gnosticism. Each one of these issues, it's like, no, you, you can't. In other words, here's the thing. You are either following Christ, believing in Christ, or you've rejected Christ and you've turned to Gnosticism. If you're in Christ, Boom, salvation, salvation, salvation because of what Christ has done. However, if you're over here flirting and playing and basically going with the Gnostic idea, well, then clearly that demonstrates you're not saved, not because of your actions. It, it, it's because, uh, it, you're not saved because of your actions, but your actions demonstrate that you have completely reject, rejected the true gospel for the Gnostic heresy. This is a polemic against Gnosticism. Those are your approaches. You can take whichever one you want. Just be, uh, just be consistent with it. If you're gonna make, I just can't stand when people say, it's a test. 
and then go, however, 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 no one's going to do it perfectly. And we start watering it down so everyone can pass the test. Then what's the point? And, and so now you're, if that's the test, then why do we even need Christ? All, all he, as long as we try, that's sufficient. No, he demands perfection. So if he demands perfection, why does imperfection give me perfect assurance? Makes no sense. All right, email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. All right, everyone have a great Monday. God bless.